I was just starting to doze off when something suddenly made me open my eyes again and stare up at the ceiling. I went on scrutinizing the ceiling for some time, then sat up on the bed and looked around, the sense of recognition growing stronger by the second. The room I was now in, I realized, was the very room that had served as my bedroom during the two years my parents and I had lived at my aunt's house on the borders of England and Wales. I looked again around the room, then, lowering myself back down, stared once more at the ceiling. It had been recently replastered and repainted. Its dimensions had been enlarged. The cornices had been removed. The decorations around the light fitting had been entirely altered. But it was unmistakably the same ceiling I had so often stared up at from my narrow creaking bed of those days. Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. And I'm Bill. This is uh, technically our, our third book this year, but our only our second Big Read. Um, we, we previously did a nonfiction book and then a little nonfiction book, and this is our, our first big novel. We read Kazuo Ishiguro's The Unconsoled, um, which is a bananas book, which we're going to have a really fun time summarizing. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm, <laughs> on, on, on that front, I'm actually going to... Let me just talk a little bit about Kazuo for a second. Um, he's one of the man book um he's best known for the remains of the day and for probably never let me go which were both both made into movies um both of them are pretty decent movies um his latest book was the buried giant which is a kind of a fantasy novel about uh post-arthurian england um so he's a really wide-ranging writer um who recently i think i mentioned won the nobel um and yeah so I, i'm gonna maybe hand it off to you bill to try and <laughs> try and give us maybe uh to start us on a description of what is this book (laughs) yeah so um this trying to provide a thorough summary of this book is a doomed project so i'm not going to try to do that but i'm going to try to introduce some of what goes on because um we're going to have to talk about it in some detail um the unconsoled is about a world famous pianist mr writer who comes to an unnamed central european town to deliver a recital which uh it becomes fairly clear is a fairly important recital both for the town and for Mr. Ryder. Um, we're going to talk about this later, but the book is very, um, it's very much connected with, it's very concerned with being kind of a dreamy book. Things happen, but they don't happen in a way that happens in the real world. So um, much of the fun of the book is seeing, well, fun's the right word, but much of the sort of experience of the book is seeing the way things unfold in this kind of bizarre dreamlike landscape. Um, but throughout his journeys, he's constantly being interrupted by people. So I think if you, the quick summary of this book is a man tries to give a piano recital in Central Europe, but nobody lets him. Uh, <laughs> because every time he tries to do anything, somebody comes along and, and interrupts him with some errand. Um, the most important characters are uh, Gustav, the hotel porter, who is the first major person that he meets on the journey, who is very concerned with sort of the standing of hotel porters in the town. Um Gustav's daughter, Sophia, and his granddaughter, Boris, who it turns out might also be Ryder's like, wife and stepson. Um, as we'll talk about later, Ryder's exact relationship to these people really changes. When he first meets them, he seems to be first meeting them, but then later on, he remembers years and years of experience with them. Um, you've got the manager of the hotel and his wife and son. That's Mr. Hoffman, uh, Mrs. Hoffman, and Stephen Hoffman. 
the son is a burgeoning pianist trying to impress his parents, and his parents are, particularly the father, is trying to sort of revitalize the art scene in this town after a, a cellist named Christoph has sort of disappointed the town for a long time. To do that, he's enlisted the help of a once famous conductor from another town named Mr. Brodsky, who has moved to this town some time ago, but has been a belligerent drunk for something like 10 years. So they're going to try to rehabilitate Mr. Brodsky into a sort of artistic symbol of the town. And uh, this is all going to happen on that same recital night. So the recital night is what the whole book builds towards. It's supposed to be Stephen Hoffman giving a short piano recital, and then Mr. Brodsky conducting something, and then Mr. Ryder, our protagonist, giving a speech, and then playing this like amazing piece of piano music. Nothing goes exactly as planned. Everything is bananas. And... I think that's about as good a summary as I can give at this time. Um, yeah, I mean, so this is definitely, I mean, I just, even for the context of our previous conversations, I, I think uh, this I, the cast of characters in this book is is so important. Um, but also the book is, like, every, every review of the book is like, oh, this is a complex and ambitious and it's offbeat and it creates its own, new, you know, new aesthetic. And I think, I think sometimes, like, that's like a code for, like, Hey, this book is super weird, and we don't know if it's good or bad because it's so <laughs> different. <laughs> um, so there is, like, I think there is a with this book. I mean, hopefully, our conversation can you know can delve down to some of the the more concrete aspects of how it was written. Um, but it's it's a slippery book as far as what to talk about when everything is connected and everything is not connected <laughs> in weird ways. Um, but yeah, I do think. I mean, I do think it's 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 it'll be helpful maybe to try and I mean, not the not for you know listeners to track what's going on, but just to realize that we're going to mention a lot of characters' names because there's no there's not like a through line without mentioning characters talking to characters. Yeah. Um, and this is a decent book to you know we're going to obviously so this is our first book of fiction we're doing on the Big Read Cast, um, but because we're trying to talk about them in some depth, like we're going to spoil stuff. Like we're not going to try to pretend we're not going to. We're trying to talk about the major themes of the book and what happens. We're not going to only do that with like the first third of the book. So um, if you're going to listen to this, you're going to find out what happens in it. So it might not be terrible to like just bring up the Wikipedia plot summary or something like that because um, there are things that happen in it. And we're going to try to signpost them and sort of remind you who these people are. But that's probably not the worst idea because we can't do that for 20 minutes every time we bring up a new character or we'll be here for a very long time. The f- the fun part though is that it almost doesn't matter what plot summary you have of this book because you start the book and you're like oh the plot summary that I was given beforehand is insufficient to tell me what this book is about yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the good news is you know listen to the podcast if you're confused honestly it'd be like it'd be like a recreation of what it's like to read the book yeah if you get to the end of this podcast and you're exactly sure of what happened we did something terribly wrong because that's not what it's like to read the book. <laughs> It's true. It's true. Um, All right. Anything else you want to add, Bill? No, I think that's pretty much it. Let's get to it. All right, Bill. I think the first place I want to start is, is this the weirdest book you've read or is it among the weirdest books? Like, where does it rank? Okay. So there's a couple answers I want to have to this. This actually gets to one of the questions I have. I mean, no, it's not the weirdest book I've ever read. Um, I don't know exactly where i would rank it it's i mean it's up there i don't want to i don't want to undersell it it's definitely a bananas work of fiction um like house of leaves is in some ways weirder uh it's not as good i don't think but it's also very no and yeah you know i read capital w capital f weird fiction a lot so this would have to work pretty hard to really be the weirdest thing i'd ever read 
But it's, True. it is a very weird book. I think it's the weirdest work of, like, literary fiction I've ever read, if that makes sense. No, I think, well, no, it totally does. So I think, so when I asked the question, I, I think you're right. So I think, you know, you and I both kind of read widely genre-wise. And um, <clears throat> it, this book is not, like, actually what's so weird about it is that it's a very, you know, it's like all of his prose. It's very controlled and factual but like you say, it's it, it's a literary project, which means it's more about language and character than it is about plot, supposedly. And I, I, I don't know. I think it's like beguilingly bizarre. Here's the question I'm going to try. To, I was going to ask you pretty closely, right? So obviously, I mentioned this already. I'm really interested in the genre of fiction that's called weird fiction with a capital W, capital mm-hmm. F, which doesn't, for those of you listening, just mean stuff that is odd, right? It, it refers to stuff that is in communication with the weird is what it's often called which is sort of this platonic form of sort of psychologically troubling and very strange uh, material so like lovecraft is one of the progenitors of it but not everything has to be quite as bizarre as that uh jeff vandermeer is probably the most important writer of weird fiction right now who wrote the southern reach trilogy and um born uh including annihilation which just came out as a movie um karen tidbeck um a lot, lot of lot of cool people and as I was reading this book, I couldn't help but wonder if you couldn't make an argument that this book isn't just literary fiction, but actually is almost weird fiction with a capital W and a capital F. Like some of the sort of psychological bizarreness of the book and the way all of the physical spaces he enters are sort of these impossible dream spaces, uh, coupled with the fact that everyone kind of treats these weird things that are happening as normal, which is a, a pretty common trope in a lot of weird fiction. Um and, and sort of magical realism, which is also related to weird fiction, right, is something truly strange will happen. And the strangeness is only compounded by the fact that most of the characters in the book say, yep, that's that's what happens on Tuesdays here. You know, that's not a right. that's not a thing. Um, not that all weird fiction does that. Lovecraft's characters actually tend to dramatically overreact to things. I, I wondered if there's any sense in which this book might make sense as part of that canon, in addition to being uh, literary fiction. In other words, is this book weird or is it weird? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, and so, I mean, I yeah, I, I I mean, I would be hesitant to say it's it's capital W weird, and I I think you actually know more about that than I do. Um, but my hesitation would be that I so I think what it might share is like there is an ongoing suppression, and I think for this book, repression of what can be known, right? So like I think that's some ways which it like. Like you and I have actually talked about Jeff Vandermeer a lot because I, I think that I have uh, respect for his work, but I think like Annihilation is a book that I both liked and that also drove me crazy. <laughs> um, and it's a book that drove me crazy because I think he's trying to get at this idea of like hyper objects, right? Things that are so complex that we actually aren't sure how to put them into words. We can't describe completely what's happening. Um, and so there's an epistemological problem that he's butting up against. And it's a, it's a problem that's, you know, created by some sort of, you know, almost, you know, transcendent but not quite phenomena, right? Um, whereas in this book, it feels like what can't be known is, like, it's purely psychological um, in the sense of here's a guy, he's a pianist, a world-round pianist, that seems to be real, maybe I don't know. Um, in a town, and 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 his knowledge seems to change 
from interaction to interaction. Yeah. Like what he's able to know about himself seems to shift with who he's talking to. And so, but, but he's never quite sure of who he is and we're definitely not sure of who he is. And so I feel like it, it butts up against that weird, the weirdness of uh, Jeff Vandermeer or whatever, because it, it can't articulate the complexity of what he's repressing or suppressing. But I, it feels like because it's all psychological, I, that seems different, right? Like he's not dealing with a, a real phenomena in the world that is creating this sort of, you know, awestruck dumbness. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So that, that leads to another sort of question and, and conversation point, which is, what's the best way to think about this book? Is it is it good to think about it yes. as um, sort of he is an actual person moving through our world and having some kind of psychological breakdown? Is it helpful to think about it in terms of he's literally dreaming? I, I think... Uh, I think one of your friends mentioned to you when you, you said that this book was our next project, but the book was 500 pages of dream logic, and that's exactly correct. And it uh, it really actually helped me. You, this was one of the only things we had said before we started reading this book was was that brief. And that actually really helped me get through the book, I think, was being a little bit better prepared for um, the the very dreamy logics throughout the book, which is, I think, exactly right. Or, or is the book... So is, is it, you know... Is it fun to think about what is actually happening, or, or do you think that's a sort of a dead-end project? That's kind of my my question. No, I mean, so I think, uh, I mean, I think at some point, if you if you enjoy this book at all, I think at some point you do have to give yourself up to what he is, like, really good at in, like, technical terms, right? So I think he's really good at um, voices. Like, they're very, like, every kind of a character monologues, he does different things to differentiate them. So, like... There's a character in the book who's the Countess, and she's sort of an important figure, um, which we'll come back to her. We're probably going to give, like, by the way, 18,000 summaries of what happens in this book because it's so bizarre. <laughs> but he's good, at he's, he's good at modulating, right? So she uses the royal we sort of casually. And so, like, at some point you have to give yourself up to that, to that stuff to just enjoy it if, if you're, if you're going to like this book at all. But for me, like, I, I don't know, like, I, I love language experiments, I love weird books, but I think that plot always matters. Even if you're, like, subverting plot, there has to be something there to subvert. And so the idea of, like, what's happening, I think, in this book, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's maybe secondary in some ways, but you can't just, I think you can't just ignore it. And so, I, I mean, for me, like, you know, I, I don't, I think it's a dream world. I don't think this is literal. I think it's, if it's not a dream world, it's like a subconscious world, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's a world that maybe, you know, it's not just him moving through a real city. It's his consciousness, you know, it's that it's his consciousness's version of what it feels like to move through a real city. But I think if, if it's anything real, it's a it's a dream. You know what I mean? Like if it, ha yeah. if it has to be one thing concretely, this is a dream in which he's confronting like various stages of his life um, yeah, as a, you know, as a public artist. That's what it seems like to me. No, I think that makes sense. I don't want to, you know, I, I imagine I could imagine... I've, t I've talked to you about this before a bit, I think, and I've certainly been talking about it a bit in public where I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tired of people treating books and movies and stuff just as puzzles to be solved. You know, I, I tend to think that the yeah. focus on plot holes you get in a lot of sort of geek-focused media criticism and discussion is, is super boring. Um, I think I mentioned this on Twitter that I saw A Quiet Place recently. Have you seen that movie? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's I think it's pretty good, but it's certainly interesting. But the you know the trope of the movie is that this family is living in this rural area where they're being sort of surrounded by these monsters that hunt by sound and are very, very, very just have very sharp hearing. So you can't talk, you can't 
you have to be very careful with how you move because they'll come and get you and they're basically unkillable, right? And it's uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a really a remarkable achievement in filmmaking because there's very little spoken dialogue. It's almost all through sign language. And the, every time a sound does happen, it really does startle the heck out of you. It's a really, really cool thing. It's John Krasinski uh, directed it. Um, yeah, it's Jim it's a, Halpert. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not his first movie he's directed, but it's one of his first ones. And it's certainly the first movie anything like this he's directed. And so I'm excited to see what he does. Right. But anyway, uh, one of the big tensions in the movie is that the Emily Blunt, the, the, the mother, is, is pregnant. And so they are consistently trying to deal with what are they going to do when they have a squalling baby in a world where yeah, noise well, gets you killed. Um, well, and also classically, you know, labor is pretty quiet. That's Yeah, no, traditionally it's a very quiet experience. <laughs> it's not, yeah. no one yells, no <laughs> one's crying. <laughs> um, and, and so the tension throughout the, it's, it's one of many tensions, but it's sort of the central tension and the reason the movie is set when it is, rather than some other point in this, you know, family's history is this baby is coming soon. What are they going to do about it? And it's sort of what animates the whole movie, right? But like people online were talking about how, oh, this is such a plot hole. Why would they ever get pregnant here? Like, it's so dumb. Why on earth would they do that? And again and again, this, this word plot hole came up. And this really frustrates me because, one, this is the movie. Like, so it's not a plot hole. It is the te- thesis of the movie. You might argue that it's not believable, but it's not a plot hole. Like, <laughs> and right. two, like what a boring response to that film. Like, the movie's not perfect. There are things you could say that it should have done differently here, but what a terribly boring thing to say, right? Is this like, if I was living in this space, here's how I'd do it better is like part of the fun of that kind of film, but it's also right not like a criticism of the movie because these are real people living in a real space. And that's kind of a tangent here, but my point is like, I don't want to treat this book as a puzzle to be solved either, right? Like I don't, I don't want to sit here and be like, oh, and on this page, he said this, which must mean he's in a dream or it must mean this or that. So I, I don't think that's exactly the right way to look at it. But I, I do think yeah. you're right. The questions come up and you can't avoid them reading through the book. Well, and let's, I mean, so we should get it out of the way. So I, I don't want to come to this. I don't want to come to the conclusion of whether you thought this was a good or a bad book yet, because I don't know if that's a helpful I, I way of thinking about a book that's this weird. Yeah. But like, so this, this book is so, I mean, this book is interesting on so many levels. And so I, I do think what happens is important. I, I think you're right. Like plot, Plot is not important in the usual ways. Like if you find a plot hole in this book, it's 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 because you're reading it wrong. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so like actually, but one of my favorite, um, a lot of the blurbs on the book that I, the uh, version that I have are like you know, uh, Ishiguro has mapped out an aesthetic territory all of his own, which I think is true. I think this is a really interesting way of doing a dream book. Um, but like one of the most prominent critics. Um, I think when the book came out, James Wood called it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you see this? He, I did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he invented a, a new category of badness or something. It's something like that, right? Yeah. And so, um, which I don't think I agree with. I actually think I've come to like this book. So I think so. So I think weirdly with this book, more than anything else, we've you know all the, the other two books we've done <laughs> or whatever it is for this podcast. But I think so. I think it is actually helpful to, to try and figure out what the game is because plot does matter for this book. But um, but weirdly, I had so okay. I had this little metaphor I figured out that I think is accurate to what he's doing, and I hesitated to bring it up because I don't want to like minimize what he's doing. Okay, here's what it is. So this is a book about a pianist in a city, right, preparing to give a, a really big concert. Like that's kind of the if there's a realistic version of plot, that's sort of the setting, right? Yeah. Um, and to the extent that that is 
happening in this dream world, it's still happening, you know, um, with certain pressures and yada yada. But so the book's about music. I mean, and Ishiguro is sort of famous for like having an obsession with music. Yeah. And um, the piece that the pianist who's called writer in the book wants to play is four movements. Well, of course, the book is four sections. Mm-hmm. And so like, it seems it seems to me really clear that he's doing this almost like almost like again, it's, it's, it's almost like a freshman writing seminar, right? Where you're like, <laughs> ah, I'm writing this I'm writing this poem and it's going to sound like punk rock. You know, it's like a, it's almost like a, a idea that's so exact, it's dumb. But I actually, for me, it, it unlocked the book because how he uses plot, um, to me, becomes like a musical theme. So there are like four main plots, it seemed like. One was this guy named Gustav, who works at the hotel, um, and his daughter, Sophia. Sophia, this is the dream book, right? This is the weird part. Sophia also is writer, the protagonist. She's also his love interest, lover, wife, something. Um and so they, Ryder and Sophia and their son Boris also have their plot. And then there's an aging composer who's a drunk who's trying to redeem himself. His name is Brodsky. He and his lover have their own little subplot. And then finally, there's like the manager of the hotel, his wife and their son, who's a budding pianist, who are also having their own weird plot. So I say all that because, like, I don't expect anyone to follow it completely, but there's a lot of plot in this book. Yeah. And it doesn't it doesn't so much matter what happens as that he, the main character, writer, he goes in and out of these four situations, com- you know, continuously, and the situations vary, but the situations mostly are people describing to him what happened, which are just these distinct voices Again, to kind of stretch the analogy to cheesiness, it's almost like instruments, right? You have these different instruments doing different themes, and what what creates any tension in the book, for me at least, was it was like it was this dynamic movement of action that wasn't necessarily like a if then plot, but it was this weird escalation where every single subplot got worse and worse and worse, but the fact that they were all interrelated and all seemed to exist together and yet separately was what made the book so bizarre does that make sense it does i hadn't actually been thinking about it as much in terms of um like i like i like your point about different instruments or different sort of musical themes that's a really i think that's a very reasonable way to think about it and one that probably i should have picked up on given that it is about music but i also got distracted by another sort of way of examining this which we can talk about later uh i yeah the the, all of these boy this book is like this. <laughs> I, uh, I know, I know. I think it's very interesting the way the protagonist kind of moves through these different stories, because uh, in some of them, he's like part of the story, like with regard to Sophie and Sophia and Boris. Um, he's he is sort of part of that interaction. In a lot of ways, it's more about their relationship with each other. But he is still at least totally a, a part of that plot in a way he isn't with a lot of the others. Like most of what happens with. Mr. Brodsky and his ex-wife, or I guess they're still married, but they're separated, Miss Collins, like, Ryder doesn't really do a lot to change any of that, right? Like, he's not really an agent in that story he, most of the time. He's more of a witness, right? And, and similarly, in the relationship between Hoffman and, or the Hoffman family, he has, like, a minor sort of bit of agency there, but a lot of that is just kind of stuff that happens while he's around, or even while right. he isn't around, because one of the weirdest things about this first-person novel is maybe four or five times throughout, he'll be talking to somebody... And then that other person will go off or will start thinking and writer's narration will follow them, even though yes. they've 
like and the book is very clear gone gone out of any possible line of sight he couldn't possibly be seeing this or he'll be hearing their internal narrative like i think the first time it happens he's in the car with uh the young stefan or stephen hoffman hoffman and they're talking about i don't know what they are talking about but hoffman goes quiet and then has this long recollection of going home and playing the piano for his parents and then so Ryder couldn't possibly be hearing this. This is all clearly an internal monologue. But then at the end of the, when they're talking, Hoffman acts as though Ryder did, was aware of it, right? Like they talk about that recollection. They talk about that memory, even though Hoffman didn't say it out loud. So the book is very, well, that, got very, very porous boundaries between like what the narrator can and cannot understand. Um, no, I, I was going to say, that was one of the weirdest moments because the book is definitely playing with narrative perspective. I totally agree. And, it, and there's, I marked a few moments when like, um, it basically goes from like first person, like close first person to basically an omniscient third person, right? But the omniscient yeah. third person is still writer, which yeah. that's what's really weird is that it's, it, you, you don't, you don't zoom out and lose writer. It's that writer suddenly becomes the third person omniscient narrator. And then, yeah, the weirdest part is it happens once more, well, I think once or twice more. But with that moment with Steven, I'm going to call him Steven. I, I don't know if his name is, Ste- it could be Stefan. I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call him Steven. So with a moment with Steven, who's an aspiring young pianist, um, Steven seems to continue as if he knows Ryder remembers everything he, he also remembers, yeah. which is, that's such a, but like what makes this book so crazy is that, um, is, I think, I think anytime you have something like, and why this also is a literary project is because you have this complexity of, you know, uh, uh, not language as far as language is so straightforward but what makes it complex is that it's it seems almost like a unmatched for what's happening right so it's this really weird dreamlike book but it's factual almost like reportorial language which which makes it weirder right it's much weirder to talk about well i walked into a room and a man had his head cut off and then i had coffee like that's more bizarre right than to kind of scream about a man having his head cut off and that's sort of the whole book is this very calm report of like well the man got in a bike accident and then we cut his leg off and then he gave a concert and and one of the things i think so when we talk about this book being dreamy, I think it's easy to start thinking of other projects that are sort of deliberately dreamy. So again, coming back to my wheelhouse, like there's all the dream work of like Lord Dunsany and then Lovecraft's dream stuff. But you can think about like Inception or whatever, right? Like other sort of, or like German, uh, what is it, expressionist filmmaking, all that really trippy stuff, like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I'm not sure that's the right genre, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. All that sort of stuff, which is really aesthetically bizarre or where, you know, there are monsters in the corners, like it's a nightmare, all of that, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, that kind of dream work stuff. This book is not like any of that at all, right? Like at no point does writer turn a corner and, you know, there's his, you know, mother naked flogging a horse or something like that. It's sort of sort of weird dream <laughs> stuff you might expect to be in a book, which we're constantly talking as, as dreamlike. It's not a Freudian book, right? Like it's not, or a Jungian book more like, more accurately. It's not any of that kind of stuff. Uh, he th- Like there's not a lot of, obviously supernatural things that happen it's not it's not anything like those right it's it's dreamy because of the logic of the book and you know given that i come to media the only kind of media criticism i have any sort of cachet in is talking about video games or games in general i couldn't help but thinking about this book through a lens of like procedures and systems and logic the way that uh like bogost talks about procedural rhetoric like th- this book right. has rules right right? It does. Like he's never going to be able to finish something. Whenever he starts on a trip from point A to point B, that person is going to tell him some lengthy diversion about his 
his or her family history. When Ryder gets there, he's going to not be able to do whatever he set out to do and then get distracted and pulled away by some other project, right? Like it's almost 100% of the time, you can almost map this book out in like a programming language, right? Obviously, the details are a lot of what makes the book interesting, but the structure of it is this repeated pattern of somebody shows up, grabs him away, Ryder starts to object, can't object, gets dragged into this weird situation that doesn't make any sense, and then finds himself trying to get back to whatever thing he was doing before, and sometimes he makes it back, but other times he gets dragged into yet another weird project until you have these sort of nested errands, right? Like he sets out on an errand to do one thing, and then gets distracted by another thing, and then gets distracted from that by another thing, and he does end up resolving all of these projects in some way, but it, it's it's a very nested, complex uh, system. And so, I, again, I couldn't help thinking about this, this book in terms of its logic, because that's how dreams feel, right? Like, oh, I, guess, yeah. I guess I can't speak to other people. It's such an inherently personal experience. But this book really felt like the way it is when I'm dreaming, and the dreams aren't about, you know, faceless monsters, right? Like, when it's just a dream about being at home alone, talking to your wife, and then suddenly you're not at home alone talking to your wife, you're in a different person's house talking to that person's wife, except you're also that person, and it all makes sense, and then halfway through that dream you realize, wait a minute, both of these things can't be true, and then you wake up, right? Like, that's <laughs> that's how no, dreams no, so work. I was, I was going to say, so I, I think when we, yeah, when we talk about being a dream book, you're right. It's, so it's, it's all about the logic and the movement of the narrator, but also the biggest thing for me that I kept coming back to, and maybe because I think this is like Ishiguro, Ishiguro's... Um, calling card which hopefully we'll talk about at some point his, his other books a little bit but um it's it's how he deals with like the narrator's knowledge right and and, and what the narrator knows versus what the reader knows versus what you know <laughs> the author knows when she's telling no one um because so like the biggest we I talked earlier about like kind of the, f- the four plots there's gustav and sophia um and and when that plot's happening um you know writer seems to have he says repeatedly till the end of the book that he just met Gustav a yeah. few days ago, right? When he yeah. comes into town. I met him when this old porter, Gustav's a porter in a hotel, when he first carried my bag, because that's when I met him. He has his daughter, Sophia. But then when he's with Sophia away from Gustav, they clearly have this like years-long relationship. He's some sort of stepfather to Boris. Um, and so and, and he seems to know that, right? So his knowledge of who Sophia is pivots as soon as they're in a different room and it and it pivots naturally like he there's no narrative kind of uh exposition suddenly his dialogue just reflects the fact that he now knows kind of some of their past history which is it's first of all i think this book was frustrating a lot of ways and i could i i I was tempted to like keep kind of i wanted to take it down a peg sometimes because i thought that he was doing some things just to do them but truthfully like even if this book is frustrating, he's doing things with such absolute control. As far yeah. as like he he's he's never putting his toe out of line when it comes to like even the spatial movement. So I I, I retraced one section where like um, Hoffman, who's the hotel manager, drives Ryder, the protagonist, all over town to go to this big dinner to have this big thing. And then Ryder's so tired, and he's like, oh, I just want to go to the hotel. And he's like, oh, I just remembered. We're in the hotel. I yeah. just have to walk through that door and go to my room. And it's like, but we, we already had a whole scene of him driving to get here. Um, but in the moment of him saying, oh, it's the hotel, you know, it's sort of that dream logic of like, oh, I, I realized I was home all along, which doesn't make any sense when you kind of zoom out. But in the moment, it, it, it feels very natural, right? It's yeah. not sensational. Like, like you're saying, it's not sensational or bizarre so much as it is just associative or these leaps that have these, you know, unspoken gaps. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and that, that's my one of my favorite things is he does that two or three times where it turns out they're in the same place that they were when they left or, you know, he, right. And that's, I think if this book is about anything other than sort of a formal project, which it, I think it is, I, I think it is about some stuff. Like, I, I did a little looking. This is the book he wrote after The Remains of the Day, right? And The Remains of the Day was right. not his first novel, but I think it was his first, like, big novel. Um, yeah, for sure. The first one or two books he wrote were, I think, well-received. Uh, I've not read them, so I don't know how they are. Uh, but this this was, uh, Remains of the Day was the first book he wrote that I won big prizes and that he, he did a lot of stuff for. And apparently he toured around the world with the book, you know, doing book tour stuff for like 18 months. And then after he did that, he wrote this book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's very clear. Like, this book is about how unsettling it is and unmoored you feel when you are suddenly this public artist this public figure who is enough of a celebrity that people know who you are right but not like a pop celebrity right like this book isn't what it's like when lady gaga comes to town but it is probably very much what it's like when kazuo ishiguro comes to town um and some of the unreality obviously is sort of an exaggerated way of the way that would work you know his relationship with so writer's relationship with sophia is you can really easily see is this sort of exaggerated relationship and actual, you know, suddenly thrust into the spotlight public figure would have with his or her partner who was not necessarily thrust into the spotlight. And, you know, maybe the, the, the foundation of their relationship was not built around the things that now this person is famous for. Do you know what I mean? Like right. she, she, he's always accusing her of not understanding the pressure on him and whatever. And she's caught up in entirely different set of priorities than almost everyone else in the town. Like, the whole town, with the exception of Gustav and Sophia, almost without exception, is all caught up in this sort of crisis about what they're going to do because the town has sort of fallen in artistic esteem because of this cellist that they've had as sort of their <laughs> main public artist, um, Christoph, who has been there, I guess, sort of their artist in residence for some time now and has just failed to do a very good job. And so they're not as good as Stuttgart now uh, because they're... <laughs> This cellist is which, not real, up to which, it. Which, which, real quick, an aside is that this book is silly sometimes, which actually I thought was was really um, a redeeming quality. Like, like a failed cellist is ruining your town. That's yeah. hysterical. Well, I, Keep I, going. It, sorry. No, but it's exactly right. It's got these almost sort of like Jane Austen sequences where, like, it's just like look at all of these ridiculous people, um, and then it goes back into being weird and it's dreamy throughout. But like. My favorite is the sequence fairly early on. I think it's the first time Ryder actually meets Brodsky. It's at least early. When they're at that dinner, and Ryder's supposed to give a speech, and he shows up in his pajamas, uh, and then they go on to talk because Brodsky's dog has died. And yes. so, yeah. like, Ishiguro traces, like, this news reaching the party, and then moving around, and then everyone freaking out, because it means Brodsky's not going to be able to be the important artist that they want him to be, because he's going to go back to being a drunk. And then... Like, Brodsky shows up and everyone's trying to be quiet, and then suddenly everyone starts going up and giving speeches about how they're going to build statues about this dog. And it's obviously exaggerated, but you can totally imagine how some weird high society group of people in a sort of mid-sized town, that's probably is analogous to the way some of them behave around their local artistic figures, right? Like, we got to keep them happy. We got to, this is the town's pride. This is, I don't know, it's such a... Oh no no so I, so this is the part so it's weird so I so I'm currently living in Syracuse New York right which right. I mean I'm guessing is a place that you don't know much about because 
I mean, only because when I got accepted here, I remember telling my wife, Emily, I was like, hey, I got into Syracuse MFA program. And her reaction was sort of like, oh, well, first of all, tears. Because um, <laughs> we liked where we were living. <laughs> and <then> the second <laughs> reaction... <laughs> the, the real story. And the second reaction was, wait, where is Syracuse exactly? <laughs> um and so, but so it's so it's been it's been crazy. So we've we kind of came here not knowing this town at all, and we we now love it. We now really love Syracuse. It's like a good mid-sized city. It has problems. It has some real economic problems. It's sort of like a college town meets like a midwestern Rust Belt town, you know. Yeah. So it has these like, but but the, what that means though is that because it's old enough and in New York, it like you go downtown and you have these kind of rusted out you know factory buildings that are still empty next to like these incredible. Um, churches, you know, there's a there's a building that was built, I think, only a couple years after the Chrysler building. I think it was the same architect. At the very least, it's the same kind of Art Deco design architecturally. I mean, it's beautiful. It's it's a magnificent little skyline in some ways. With these, there's a basilisk on the way to this, you know, um, Polish restaurant that uh, a basilica basilisk. There's a snake. No, okay. There's a basilisk. <laughs> I was I was gonna yeah. just I was gonna like a statue of basilisk. I was no, maybe gonna. It's, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. <laughs> Um, it's cool, guys. I didn't sleep last night, so it's gonna it's gonna be a lot of mistakes today. Um, so but there's this basilica on the way to this Polish restaurant that's across from like car dealerships. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's this weird, you know, uh, intersection of high culture and kind of the realities of the economy. But weirdly enough, everyone in town, whenever I talk to people who've been here forever, they actually they come back to the arts as a sign of Syracuse's you know prestige or the fact that they're alive and it's true Syracuse has a good you know they have a good like orchestra and they've got good choirs and the university of course is but like but like literally everyone especially who's older comes back to the the the, the artistic you know thriving of Syracuse as a sign of it's doing okay still and so I I thought this was like weirdly perceptive about towns that are older but not dead and and how how important this kind of public uh sector of art is do you know what i mean like i don't know yeah. like, it was it was almost like it was almost eerie because i was like is this syracuse in a, like a european setting because it was so exact let me you know i've noticed so, so minneapolis has a, a really good regional theater scene right and probably if you were going to rank like cities in america and their theater scenes you put minneapolis pretty high to the top obviously there's a vast gap between like new york and everything else but Right. Um, but it means so I spend a lot of time going to theater here and I've started to recognize some of the actors and it's kind of fun because like other people also recognize them. And so like, oh, yeah, we know a lot about Sally Wingert. You know, we can really t- we've seen her in this, right. and this and she's great. And I was like, well, and she's a good actress. Like, I don't want to be mean to this. She's a very good actress, but like she's not like important. Like <laughs> she's yeah. a recurring player in local Minnesota uh, theater and she's very good. And I hope she has, a, you know, continues to have a long and successful career. But, you know. If Sally Wingert was having trouble and was suddenly, you know, I, people would start talking about it, uh, even though, again, well, it, this isn't this. You know, I, I don't think she's even been in very much television. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, I think what, what he captures, though, which what you're getting at, too, is that like these things take on such an importance. And there's something beautiful about that. Like, I think there's something beautiful about local artists only ever being known locally. Right. Yeah. Like the. Um, there's like in the the most famous example, of course, is usually musicians. There's always like yeah. some guys in town who everyone's like, oh, he's great, he's a local guitar player or whatever. But there's also what I like about this book is that he captures sort of the desperation of needing to have something in town. Like if we don't have enough culture in this town, 
that our lives are sort of being wasted just by living here. Yeah. Um, and, and to me, that felt very accurate to like uh, a lot of the people I'd known Syracuse. But, you know, even in Denver, I, I feel like uh, uh, there's this weird way in which Denver is exploding right now with sort of, you know, economic opportunities and whatnot. But the way that people justify kind of how cool Denver is, it's like, oh, it's, it's great pub scene. It's got, you know, the DCPA and the Cardo Symphony. And, like, and it's still it's still this like cultural hub is how it's justified as a great place to live. You know? Yeah, absolutely. But so, yeah, I thought I don't know. And that yeah, that those those are the kind of stuff that this book I thought did did almost perfectly and, and did kind of win me over as far as, you know, where was I feeling about, you know, it's such a it's such it's such a big task to get through some of these monologues, right? Because they just they go on forever. Yeah, there's and a yet lot there's some... of like five page monologues in this book with no paragraph <sighs> breaks, um, which is obviously no. a choice, and I appreciate it because it's just kind of hitting him in this wave of, but like, woof. <laughs> Well, and again, I think when you zoom out, for me, like that's why I started to think of it as like these these themes that would recur because it, it almost becomes more about the rhythm at some point, right? That like Hoffman has been quiet for a while, and now he's gonna force Ryder to be quiet, you know, and take over this 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 chunk, and like the the amount of space he takes is almost more important at times than what he's saying. Yeah, um, which I think is really interesting. It's just it's hard because when you have a book that's this long, you know, over five hundred pages. And sometimes the criticism I would have is like, it seems to be the same experiment over and over. Do you know what I mean? So like, not to be like the pretentious lit guy, but like, so I used to really hate James Joyce. Um, (laughs) I still don't like some of his stuff. I still think he he gets it wrong in a way that I think people don't want to admit because he's a genius. And he is a genius. And Ulysses is a beautiful book full of lots of emotion. But it is a book in which essentially the style is the hero of the book, right? That the changing style is how he creates any sort of like, you know, tension or drama, which I won't go into. But it's a book that's longer than this, and yet every section has a vastly different experiment. Do you know what I mean? So even if you sort of hate it, it, you're sort of pulled in awe at how much he's doing. Whereas if my big complaint with this book is like, okay, I, I think he's doing a really interesting experiment, and I, I think the length does matter to what he's doing, but I don't know that I don't know that it would be any like what if this was a four section book that was two hundred and fifty pages? Do you know what I mean? Like, so I actually have I a, a note from my notes because I was I was taken aback by this book, but about page one hundred, I have a note that just says, "Am I going to get tired of this before five hundred and thirty five pages?" <laughs> <laughs> Once I yes. started to realize what was actually going on. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, so, and I, yeah, so on that, so I will, I I did want to ask you, um, you mentioned one of your favorite scenes being when Ryder goes to the, uh, you know, to the dinner party for Brodsky and his dog dies. Also note, so this is where he does some normal dream stuff. That whole time at a fancy dinner party, Ryder is in his nightgown. Yes. Um, and there's sometimes when like, and that's why I said the book can be really silly because he, he does that now and then when he puts like normal dream stuff in there. Um, and so I was just curious, you know, what I go, you, do you have other scenes that st- stick out as far as what you love from the book? Yeah. So there's a couple, I think that's probably the best sort of social satire scene. And that's why it jumped out at me. Um, it's probably also the scene, which is most a social satire. I yeah. thought that this, the, the Hoffman kid Steven's relationship with his parents was one of the more interesting parts of the book. But I if totally I had to, agree. if I had to pick one scene, I'd actually say the scene at the cinema, which is probably in some ways the scene when the book is most signaling, like, look, you need to just, we're going to go some weird places and you got to get used to it. Um, 
because there's definitely a couple some of the weirdest things that happen in the book the things that are most like traditional dream logic are fairly early on which i think is ishiguro sort of signaling like we're going places like you need to be yeah, prepared bu- buckle up uh and the cinema i think is one of my favorite scenes not only because of the way it so they're going to see 2001 right which um writer repeatedly states is his favorite or one of his favorite movies and he's seen it a million times yeah. But when he's describing the movie, the movie he's describing is not 2001. I mean, it's partly it's 2001. He'll open by talking about monkeys hitting sticks in front of a monolith, and he'll mention Hal. But he talks a lot about Clint Eastwood and Yul Brynner, who are not in the film. Uh, I know. I and, know. like, Clint Eastwood polishing his gun or, like, his enormous screwdriver he's going to use to take Hal apart with. Uh, and, you know, I that's when I that's, – that's the first moment when I was like, okay, we really are. Like, this is just unmoored from our version of reality, and that's – fine like and it's it's important to do that but it's not just the sort of signaling of that scene that's good i think the way he's that's the first time he really gets dragged in to meet a section of the general public um right to talk about his place in the in the with this recital and what it means to the town and hears most about the the old cellist christoph um and i think sort of the unreality of that scene he stumbles upon a bunch of people playing cards and drinking and joking in a movie theater which is just something deeply offensive about that right (laughs) (laughs) or fun i don't know it sounds like a good time but at the very least deeply strange right like you can't yes i've seen people be really rude in a movie theater before but i don't think i've ever seen anything like that i think that's probably my favorite single scene i don't know what would you say i so i so it's it's funny i mean i so i i definitely enjoyed this book most when i sort of just like well actually to be honest when i read it fast right when i stopped trying to like yeah no, I... lot, yeah. When I when I really, when I let my reading speed go faster, and I sort of you know, like when you get to that place, you're like you're absorbing sentences without reading every word. Do you yeah. know what I mean, um, so I think that was a weird way in which I enjoyed it. Partly because it helped the dreamlike <laughs> feeling yeah. of like where are we? <laughs> um, but I I do think when I I think he's so good at um, and this is true of his other books too. But he's so good at like you get a sense of how things are, of like how relationships are, of how writer stands vis-a-vis this issue or this person, without ever knowing anything concretely. Yeah. And so and so I, I liked when he would go like down the rabbit hole of specificity. So I liked the scene that you pointed out, um, the dinner scene, the cinema scene for sure. I actually really liked the. Um, I think one of the most emotional scenes for me, weirdly, which I was so surprised by, is toward the end of the book, Gustav, who's uh, Sophia's father and also the hotel porter, he and his all the porters in town, <laughs> they gather at this pub, basically, and, um, right, like once a week they have this meeting about how to elevate the standing of porters in town, which, again, like, it's, it's treated so seriously that it actually does have some serious plot stuff, but... Yeah. It's it's such a it's such a silly thing, right? It's such a silly thing to have porters meeting to discuss how they can improve theirs. Like it's silly in the sense of like how can we improve the prestige of our position, but it's not silly in the sense of like this is sort of like a proto union trying to figure yeah. out how to raise their position into, you know, economic, you know, betterment. But okay. So and so writer finally ends up with these guys. Um and <laughs> And they have a porter dance. And it's a guy miming carrying a suitcase, right? And so, I mean, obviously you read it, but I just, I just, I couldn't get over like the progression of it's okay. It's a, it's a, it's a one of the random porters miming. Um, you know, he has a cardboard box that's empty and he's kind of miming carrying it as the dance. He's on a table, he's dancing. And then finally they get Gustav up there, who's an old, old man. 
and Gustav, they actually start giving him real suitcases that are yeah. actually too heavy for him. And it's implied, basically, spoiler alert, sorry, not that this book is about plot at all, <laughs> but uh, it's implied that at the end, Gustav dies. He collapses. And it seems very clear that like his exertion in this dance is partly what leads to him dying. And so it's this incredible scene where like Ishiguro goes so far into making it real, right? Because it's, it's such a stupid, dreamlike randomness of like we're all dancing on the table by holding suitcases but he goes through each detail so carefully and also i think what's 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 needed for any kind of action in a book is escalation right you have to kind of raise the stakes and so it's such a perfect example of how you can create narrative drama out of nothing right that this is just a silly dance with porters and then all of a sudden it's like becoming this life and death symbolism for Gustav's life. I don't know. I thought that was hysterical and poignant and weird. And I thought it was one of the best parts of the book. For me. No, I, I would agree. That is, that is one of the f- only times I was reading the book and I was like really sort of, I was catching my breath almost. And it's actually because of the way as it escalates, Ishiguro throws in lines of dialogue from Boris, the grandson who is starting to realize that this is too much for his grandfather, which is the first time he's yes. ever like, there's a long sequence earlier in the book when Boris has this like, dream imagination thing of boris and his grandfather fighting off street toughs um which is a pretty good scene but uh like he's got this sort of elevated image of his grandfather as this indestructible person and then he starts to realize this is going to be too much for him and so it'll be short paragraph of describing the dance boris saying no grandfather stop short paragraph of describing the music no grandfather stop you know very simple language but it really builds up the tension. So there's no, you have no doubt that this is going to, at the very least, really hurt him at the end of it. It's not really a surprise when it happens, but that's definitely a very effective moment. Um, Yeah. And actually you just mentioned, I I really love when Ryder and Boris are, are, they're on their own little quest at one point. And uh, I think Ishiguro does kids really well. Like he has like, Boris is such a weird little character. Um, He's obsessed with like basically this foosball player that he lost um, yeah. from his foosball table and then but as they're on this like you know mission to uh to to, to find the foosball player um <laughs> which is again ridiculous and hysterical but so but again treated so importantly it's like this it's a way for Ryder and boris to try to you know come to terms with each other relationally and yet um the whole time boris is like having these imaginary karate fights yeah <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's it was i mean i thought for honestly it was again like he's so good at He's so good at capturing exactly what it's like to walk with a little kid who's pretending to be in a karate fight down the street that I think he gets away with so much because it's such a minutely and perfectly observed, you know, uh, kind of interaction. Does that make sense? Like, it's yeah. so weird, but it never feels – you never feel like you're losing the plot because he. It's the, the, there's like a verisimilitude to what's actually happening moment to moment. Well, and I, I definitely think Boris is, is very – because he doesn't talk like a kid. Like, he's supposed to be, like, what, nine? Like, and he does not talk like a nine-year-old. He'll talk about how his day no. is somewhat tiring, you know. But he <laughs> he still, like, when Ryder is sort of remembering this kid's lot, like, thinking it is exactly the logic of a, small, a child that about that age. Like, it, it totally, again, it, it gets the, the way those kids' brains work. Right. My favorite bit with Boris is actually the like tiling manual (laughs) yes i'm so glad you brought it up because i was gonna get to it (laughs) so like early on in the book 
Boris mentions something about how he was redoing the bathroom in his mom's apartment. And it's not really clear what, what was going on or why this would be something he was doing. And he didn't do a good job with the tile because he didn't know how to do it. And then at the movie theater, actually, the concession stands. And again, one of the the scene really is where it really concentrates some of the weirdest stuff. The like vendor who's selling popcorn or whatever is also selling some old weird stuff that they don't want anymore, which the manager is right. fine with as long as they don't do it too much. Which is very, I don't know, very like sunless sea. Very, you know, that that's exactly the sort of thing that would happen in something like that. Um, yes. But he he buy, he buys this book, and it's this book on like being a handyman that's in terrible shape, but it has a chapter specifically on doing tiles. Uh, and then later on, Ryder is sort of induced to give this book to Boris, and Boris is just enraptured by it. And again, it shows you how to do everything. Is the line he says again and again and again, um, and. In the one hand, it's absurd, right? Because I don't think very many nine-year-olds would be that enraptured by sort of books like this. But on the other hand, it's exactly right because it's a book about like how to be a grown-up, right? How to do grown-up things. And suddenly it's fascinating. <laughs> well, and, and even more so, and this is why, I mean, this is, I think, why people were probably frustrated with the book because you can see the, like, I think if you push on the book at all, you see these like really intelligent connections that are happening that... And and maybe a, a more traditional book, or even just a, a more explicit book, would be would be kind of you know displayed. I think. So what I'm getting at is that. So he has this like handyman's manual, right, which is hysterical. But his mom, Sophia, who is a potentially writer's love interest, um, when it's just the three of them, that's clearly like a family unit. Yeah. Um, and the mother's whole thing is that she's constantly looking for a place for them to live, right? Yeah. I mean, a place that's good enough for them to live. And so here you have the, you know, uh, anxieties of the mother kind of transmuted and transplanted into Boris without it ever being said explicitly that his concern for like how to fix up a house is probably coming from his mom's concern of like, we don't have a good home to live in. If we just had a good home to live in, we'd all be happy and fine. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And so, and, th- and that's constantly happening throughout with these like unspoken connections that I think they happen enough that like even if you don't notice them consciously, your mind feels like things almost make sense. But then he he for this book, other books he lands the punch at the end. Other books he ties things together. This book he is he is committed to like this is the project. It's going to end without me giving you like oh and then Ryder woke up. That's never going to happen, you know. Well, so I I have a question for you since uh so I we we've kind of talked about so. I mean, this is a book that I think invites some sort of, you know, it invites a sense of allegory, if not actual allegory. And, yeah. You know, like this idea of like, it's a, it's almost a book about ideas, maybe even. So I was just curious, like, what do you think is being allegorized or analogized or even just like, what are the big ideas that are at stake in this book? Yeah, I mean, I do think a lot of it is about, you know, community's relationship with with important like, quote-unquote important art right like and I, I do think that's fairly literal and i do think that is part of what he's doing is what it does to the artist to be perceived as like the important intellectual artist and what it does to the community to have it have him or her show up and how people's relationships with um these figures become intensely personal even though the celebrity doesn't have is not actually does not know this person um they talk a bit about how Mr. Hoffman realizes he didn't know his wife very well because she had a love of Baudelaire that he didn't know about. Um, right. And, you know, so there's all these people that think they know Ryder and know a lot about him and, and really care about him and have followed his career, but that he doesn't know. And his music may have had some important part of their life. And so I really do think a lot of it is 
more or less about that. Um, I think it's also about, you know, what is it, Tolstoy or whoever it was who said that all f- every happy family is the same and every unhappy family is different. I do think there's ways of examining, you know, ways breakdowns in communications can really wreck families. Um, I don't know. What, what kind of things were you thinking about? Yeah, no, I think you're you're right on the nose for, I think, both the ones I was I had in mind. The big the big one about art. I mean, so I do think it's really interesting because there there is something so like um, I, I think there's something about art which sort of gets to these these cheesy ideas of what it means to be human that we're almost uncomfortable articulating any other way right yeah. so and this is sort of, this is a classic argument about in some ways art displacing religion a little bit right that like we have these kind of unquantit or unquantifiable you know means of being alive that aren't reduced to sort of blunt facts of life and we used to kind of look somewhat to religion to fill that need and some of us still might but as a culture it seems like you know art has kind of is the one that is the is the site where we can all say hey there's something mysterious and weird and beautiful about being alive that i just don't i don't see through strict material biological concerns right yeah and so there's this and so i think that that's like a really a really really big idea but i think it's important because so the book is called the unconsoled and it's it's it is a book about not only you know maybe people disappointing each other as people but it's a way in which the art is never enough, right? It's never enough for all of these people. They're all desperately wanting writer's performance. And at the end, he doesn't even perform, right? He doesn't even get there. And same thing for writer. He desperately has these things hanging on his performance. He doesn't perform. And at the end of the book, it says, you know, he felt okay with how things went, which yeah. is hysterical <laughs> because, of course, it was ter- like everything was horrible as far as the actual concert goes. And so I think that's a really beautiful idea about like what art can and can't do and how there's this 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 longing this this need for comfort that art is supposed to give us that we don't have. But actually so okay so this another part leads me into maybe a more specific question which is like I do think it's about family breakdown. This is a, a clearly like a psychological book, a dream book about the unconscious or whatever. Do you what characters do you think are basically writer or like parallels yeah. to writers? Con- unconscious dilemmas do you mean like i feel like so the one that i would pick out i think there's three of them but the one i pick out immediately would be stephen hoffman the yeah. young pianist he clearly is some sort of projection or parallel to writer right because like he's so worried that, like, he all Stephen wants is for his parents to love and support his art and there's a similar theme where writer keeps waiting for his elderly parents to show up to the concert because it'll mean the world to him if they just see him perform at this level of his career. Yeah. And I was just curious, like, who else stood out? I think we've probably got the same people. I mean, Hoffman is the most obvious one because of that parallel. And I think the most heartbreaking line in the book, um, the book's not overly emotional. Like, emotional things happen, but by and large, writers bemused by them. Uh, and right. And I think the reader is supposed to be detached. But the one moment when I was actually... Because I, I found myself caring about these weird characters more than I thought I would. I did too. Like, same. And again, with not a lot of... He doesn't... He does not a lot of... Uh, he doesn't pull on your heartstrings very much. He's not trying to do that. I mean, he is, but he's not trying to do it in sort of big, unsubtle ways. He's very much just saying, this is how this person thinks. And you're like, well, I understand that. And so I care about them, right? But, right. you know, at the end, it becomes clear that for all the hullabaloo about writers' parents coming into town, he's never actually asked them to come to town. They haven't, there's, there's not actually any plan of them doing that. Um, and when he's confronted by this, by the sort of accountant character who has, who kind of closes out both ends of the book, too, I think that's... Like she, she, he really smart. only sees yeah. her at the beginning and at the end, and I think maybe talks to her once in between. 
she says, you know, I can't find them. I don't think they're coming, man. Like, I don't know what, I, I don't know why you did this. And his response is just, I was very sure they would come this time. And that, that like really got me, frankly. Uh, it was a really, I don't know when I started crying, but I mean, it was, it was a very emotional moment. And that's really what Hoffman's, Stephen Hoffman's whole arc is. So I think that's definitely the most obvious one. But I think you could make an argument that Boris and Brodsky are also sort of, in some ways, Ryder at a different point in his life, right? Like Ryder has totally. a real love for football, like soccer, which comes up here and there. Like when he's bored and he doesn't know what else to do, he tries to remember trivia about soccer. Right. Um, and Boris, of course, has that weird obsession with the soccer player. Um, but there's a well, similar and, and sort he's, of... Well, I was just saying, and he's also really... That's also the, It also helps explain if Boris is some sort of part of his past, he's so cold to Boris, right? Yeah. So like, there's a weird point where like they're kind of getting along... And then, and then he sort of turns on Boris, and it's never really explained why, but it, it sort of fits, it feels more, it feels like there's something else there if, if, if Boris is partly a manifestation of his youth, because, you know, who, who doesn't treat their past just like that? Yeah. I mean, like, exactly. I was a stupid little boy, I don't like to look at him, he was pudgy and dumb. <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, I think about most of high school, and I just try to stop thinking about high school. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um. I don't know if the connection with Brodsky is quite as strong in my mind, but there's enough um, with him sort of having been important and then not being important anymore, which is, a, I think, a big writer's always very worried about that. Um, he's, he's sort of worried that he really hates it when people don't recognize him, even though he doesn't come out and say it. There's the sequence when he's at the like the apartment trying to be introduced to these two women and they don't recognize him and they're talking about how they think they saw Mr. Ryder earlier and he can't bring right. himself to speak like he's too out of breath plus it's a dream and so he can't bring himself to speak <laughs> um and so I, I think there's some connections there but I think definitely Boris and Hoffman were, were those the three you were thinking of or did you have somebody exactly. else no I I think no I thought those were the three for sure and I, and I, it's very neat right it's like child beginning artist and then writer's middle-aged and then Brodsky's old. So you yeah. have like, including him, you'd have the span of his life. Um, I will say, I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think Ishiguro, he gets, so I think he's a weirdly kind of brutal and almost nasty writer, right? So yeah. like, 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 like the other books he does, you know, like the Remains of the Day, which I think you've read as well, right? Yeah, that's the one um, of his I've read before. That's right. So, um, you know, that book is basically about a butler who is, you know, he's reminiscing on his life and his previous, you know, employer, this this British aristocrat, was basically a Nazi sympathizer. And so it's this really sort of like, but it's it's like a light and airy and formal, you know, kind of, you know, uh, manuscript that is a complete takedown of British aristocracy, right? Not just like in the past, but as it existed in the 20th century and how it was complicit in the fascism of the 20th century, right? Which is really, it's sort of a nasty, uh, but accurate, maybe like, you know, kind of compelling argument, but he does so with such, you know, guilelessness, you know what I mean? Like he's so, his prose is so uh, almost like limp sometimes with how it's not trying to prove anything and I think that happens here in the sense that, like, there are some there are some ways in which Ryder is being, I think, brutally attacked, right? Like, where he is this, he is not meeting the moment of his public art, right? Like, his public, him becoming a public artist um, has these demands on him. But I think he, he's terrible to Sophia in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah. Um, and, of course, he looks ahead if Brodsky is sort of the projection of his future, or, or even... Worse, if it Brodsky is some sort of like 
you know, manifestation of his present, where he is currently a burned out artist, not meeting the needs of others, including those who actually need him. Yeah. You know, that that's a real that's a that's a really condemning, tragic picture of this guy who otherwise seems like he's just trying to do his best. Right. It, it gives a really negative, I think, reading um, on how to, you know, how to manage a public life, which I think is fascinating. I just think it's I think sometimes Ishiguro, like, he pulls no punches and sometimes it just makes me a little sad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it is definitely like nothing happy happens in, or not nothing, but very few things happy happen in this book. And it's very he doesn't pull punches. He hits you right in the gut. Like he doesn't, it, it doesn't feel contrived or melodramatic. It's just, yeah, this is the no. way life can be. And it, sometimes life is just this horrible mess. People who are more or less trying to, you know, move through life will just treat each other terribly. You know, pe- people will do these horrible things to each other without really setting out to do that a lot of the time. You know, writer is sort of pointlessly ignores, he sort of ignores Boris all the times when Boris could not be more obviously signaling, please play with me, daddy. You know what I mean? I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. Well, I, I do think so. And in, in that sense, I think there are, there are these repeated moments, like you said, you know, all these family members are unhappy and are unhappy in different ways. And um, there's more than one moment where someone almost consoles the hurting person. Yeah. You know I mean? Like Miss Collins almost consoles Brodsky. Mrs. Hoffman almost consoles her husband. Yeah. And, and then and then they don't. They never do. They almost do it. And then they turn away out of selfishness. And it's sort of this, it's like this, it's like, it's like this personal tragedy just on repeat. Um, and I, yeah, that I, and I will say, I think, and that's, if I was gonna make an argument for this book being shorter, it would partly be because as he allows things to kind of, they don't become coherent, but as they kind of escalate at the end, um, I found myself gripped by a lot of the action. You know, you ha- you have Gustav almost dying. You have like Brodsky without a leg trying to be heroic. And actually my favorite turn is you get a villain in Mr. Hoffman, which yeah. I think is hysterical. And I think that's actually one thing I wish he had pointed out, because I think Mr. Hoffman becomes a villain because he has this whole storyline about wanting to be a composer, and then he sabotages Brodsky. Yeah. So to me, I, I think he's trying to sabotage Brodsky so he can take over as the composer, but it never comes to fruition. And, and I do wish every once in a while Ishiguro would just like give us that small satisfaction of tying a few things together. You know what I mean? Like Even in a weird book like this... If at one point Hoffman had said, my dreams are dashed, I'll never be a composer, I would have loved his villainy even more. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Although I did like how apparently his his wife had assumed he was a composer just because of the way he talked about Like, that's actually a pretty good <laughs> bit. When she shows up, at, they have the flashback, and she shows up at his house, and it's like, well, where do you write your music? And that's when he suddenly realizes that they've been operating on the wrong... Um, there's a lot of little stuff like that, which is very... Uh, you know, Brodsky and Collins talk about their first fight or he talks about their first fight their first big fight that you know signaled the end and he oh that's right they they had this sort of pointless fight in the garden and then he comes back that night going up the stairs intending to sort of talk to her and apologize and then she coughs and he reads into that cough all of her perfectionism and all the things he can't stand and so he goes back downstairs and goes to sleep (laughs) Um, no there's i mean i i think the frustrating thing with ishiguro's books and not just this one um that you could maybe like, which I think he's doing on purpose, but like there's a real clear, like almost uh, compulsive fear of vulnerability. <laughs> yeah. And it, it is, it is hard sometimes to read a book where you're like, okay, if you guys just had a normal conversation, like a lot of these problems wouldn't be problems. And this book almost does it better because it, it talks about like the historical ways in which 
grievances build up, you know? Yeah. And so I think there's like, whenever you, whenever you have one of these moments of like, she coughed and I didn't want to talk to her. It's not cause she coughed, right? It's cause you have like, like you said, this, you have this history of her perfectionism, you know, kind of, you know, girdling you or whatever. And so this book I think does it better than some of those other books, but I, I do sometimes that that's like a pet peeve of like, Hey, if you guys just said what you were thinking, like all of the tension evaporates. Well, that's so. This is a this is I'm kind of, this is kind of out there. So I've got kind of a, a weird thing I want to talk about for a second. If you're okay with that, yeah, go for it. Okay, so I talked about Ian Bogost briefly before. He wrote a book called Unit Operations in I think 2006, and I read it and don't understand most of it because it's very complicated. <laughs> um, but it's kind of a theory of applying a sort of a, a particular way of doing video games analysis to other forms of art analysis. So he's both saying this is a way we should look at, not the only way, but a way we should look at video games, and it also works for other media, right? And he talks yeah. about, uh, again, it's unit operations. It's this kind of Leibnizian, like, atomized, instead of viewing games as systems, you can view them as, like, mostly identical units sort of interacting with each other, right? So, like, it, it, it's, and it's, in terms of how it works on kind of a metaphysical level, I don't fully understand it. But he gives an example when he goes into a fairly deep four or five page analysis of the otherwise forgettable 2004 Tom Hanks movie, The Terminal, um, <laughs> which is not a movie anyone has ever thought about, right? It's, I've not seen it, but by all accounts, it was this fine, trite thing about a man who, you know, comes to the U.S. to do something and then gets ends up living in this terminal at, I think, JFK Airport because his home country has had a revolution. And so his passport isn't good, but he can't go home either. Um, and Bogos says, you know, this isn't a very good movie, right? Like, in the traditional way of looking at it, the narrative is trite. It doesn't really make any sense. Characters are sort of pointlessly mean to each other. But he says, if you look at it as examining different modes of waiting, like sort of the unit of waiting... He says it's yeah. a lot more interesting. And again, I've not seen the movie, but he talks about how there's Tom Hanks waiting in this terminal. There's this uh, customs officer waiting for clear instructions for what to do. There's this person waiting for that. He says it becomes a lot more interesting. And there's a way in which this book is more interesting to me, less as a sequence of things that happen, and more as a way of sort of examining different modalities of the same kind of either process or tropes. So again and again, you get characters who just don't talk to each other. Right. rendered at its most literal extreme with Gustav and Sophia, who have an understanding going back 40 years to when literally like never eight? speak to each other. Yeah. <laughs> um, all the way up to, you know, Hoffman even mentions that he and his wife have sort of an understanding where they don't talk to each other, and it's not as literal, but they don't really engage as people. And then you have Ryder not talking to Sophia and Boris about anything, literally not talking to Boris and not talking seriously to Sophia and Brodsky. And, and again, these sort of repeated themes and sort of seeing the way they interact, I think is is interesting and is a way to get away from some of the repetitiveness of the book, maybe as a way of sort of thinking about it. Um, because you're right. Like sometimes there's, yeah, I think this is the eighth time that someone has just not consoled someone else. And I get that the right. title of the book is the unconsoled, but maybe, <laughs> but in, in, <laughs> if you view it more as iterations of that same trope, I, I wonder if there, I, I thought it was interesting and it made me think of that if nothing else as, as a way of sort of thinking about the, the book. Because, again, I'm, I'm interested in the book's logic almost more than the book's characters, which is weird. <laughs> I mean, I, I think on some level, so is Ichiguro, right? Like, I, I think, um, well, it reminds me of, uh, it reminds me of movie critics who sometimes defend, like, really obviously bad movies <laughs> on the grounds of, like, on the grounds of, like, technical mastery, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, like, I, I actually think, uh, 
So I think, uh, like, I, I recently, okay, I recently rewatched on purpose. I wish it was on accident. Um, Hellboy, Hellboy two. <laughs> oh, I did too. Actually, it's a mess. <laughs> so, but what's crazy is like, there's so much bad writing and like even some really bad acting. Like, I don't, I don't know why everyone was obsessed with um, Selma Blair. Like, I don't like, I don't get why she was a big star for a while. I don't think she's a good actress. But when you when you when you kind of zoom out from these normal, you know, measurements of like what makes a good movie, such as acting and writing, <laughs> um, and there's some good writing. I don't mean to say there's not good writing, but like the dialogue specifically, is the not dialogue great. is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when you zoom out and you like, I'm, like the set pieces and the way that he's doing practical effects and the way that he I, that way that he's sort of building a whole world like in a blink without ever having any putting any effort into it, like it's it's an if you're doing that measurement it's a masterpiece in some ways right like it it literally is one of the more impressive like technical films of especially the superhero genre like that was one of the things that stood out to me was like here's a superhero film that's basically a fantasy film that has way more interesting special effects than anything i i've seen recently um and that that's that that's somewhat i think that's some of the argument for why this book is impressive to me is that um, the way that he's using monologues, the way that he's modulating subplots to kind of create a sense of action without ever there being any actual action. Um, and of course, his his, gris, his grasp on escalation, um, which is basically arbitrary, but he still deploys it to create this sense of drama, which, I mean, it's, it's, it's impressive on that front. No, I, I think that's right. So it's funny you mentioned uh, Hellboy 2. I had also just watched that, but... Um, Which is crazy. <laughs> well, because it just came to Netflix. That's why. Um, it was very recently on Netflix, so it was that's probably why we both watched it, because it would show up that on... That probably like, is. It was like, because, hey, you should, you're should. you a nerd. You should watch this. And I was like, you're right. I should. <laughs> um, but I... The movie that, which is also Del Toro, that I find myself talking about like this is Pacific Rim, which I unabashedly love, and other people will mm. criticize in ways I don't like. And so I get into this sort of fun <laughs> argument with people saying Pacific Rim is a very dumb movie, and it's actually not. It's a very intelligent movie with a bad script. Um, uh, <laughs> there's so no, much. No, that's I yeah. Even more aggressively than Hellboy Two, which I think is is a is probably a worse movie. Uh, in every way uh pacific rim has like just so much real intelligence baked into every frame on top of a totally mediocre script um and so i don't i don't really think it's like the best movie ever made or anything but i i think it's a lot better than people give it credit for because of just how smart it is with its use of color and the way it deploys these sort of shorthand almost anim like anim very much anime tropes for how characters work to get this relatively complex web of relationships going very fast um, such that you can follow why characters are doing what they're doing, as well as just the visual design of it is just unbelievable, which I was really reminded of when I saw Pacific Rim Uprising, which is not directed by Del Toro and does none of the things that were good about the first movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a way in which he makes all of these massive CGI monsters and creatures feel heavy, like they feel like like weight in a way that is really hard to do. Um, and so I defend well, Pacific no Rim... Other... No other robot movies do that, right? Like no yeah. other robot movies ever. It, it always feels like Legos knocking over Legos. Exactly, and that's like Uprising feels like that. Like all the cool mechs are just clearly CGI, you know, toys. Whereas you know things move with weight in Pacific Rim. Um, and I defend it a lot, partly because it's funny to watch people have to Swarm. actually articulate why they didn't <laughs> like the movie. Two, because I'm right; it is a very smart movie in every other way. And three, because it gets compared to like my other thing, you know. It's a much smarter movie than 
like Batman versus Superman. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> yeah, what isn't? Like, I want to, I want people to understand the difference between like the sort of appearance of intelligence baked onto just incredible, like stupidity versus a movie which has serious flaws but is actually a work of craft <laughs> um, yeah well and, and that that's actually a good comparison because people the people who will defend Zack snyder will always point out his like aesthetic and visual effects which to me like are overrated oh, yeah. um but also like you're saying he doesn't he doesn't i don't think he like you're right i never thought about it in terms of like framing like del toro does good framing because what 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 Zack Snyder might do sometimes interesting is like color palette or like movement, and he does do some interesting movement. But actually, to me, it's like it's always it's like like Three Hundred is the most boring movie in the world. Yeah, because it's the it's the same trick for like an hour and a half, right? It's like oh look at how look at this weird visualization in slow motion. It's like <laughs> okay okay I get it. Like they're really buff guys who are moving cool, but it's not interesting because there's no dynamism to it. And that's true yeah. of all of his movies, I think. No, I think that's right. And I probably shouldn't pick on Zack Snyder so much, but um no, we should. He's I bad. should. He's he's well, morning movies. Yeah, he's, well, he's I think he's done now for actually some fairly tragic reasons, so that's you know, I like, no, it's <laughs> true. You're right. On the one hand, I'm glad he's out, on the other hand, I wish it was cuz he'd realized he needed to make different movies and not because of a family tragedy. <laughs> no, that's true. All our love to Zack Snyder personally, even though we don't like your movies. I'm not sure how we started talking about Pacific Rim and the but that's the joy of this kind of podcast, right? Is you just end up talking about uh, totally unrelated things in a review. Well, Bill, of... truth, truthfully, it's the joy of conversing with you where I feel like Pacific Rim is always going to it, it might it might come up, you know. It's it's always a possibility of conversation. <laughs> I mean, that's that's fair. Uh, you know, I will somehow manage to make something remind me of Pacific Rim uh, if really left in any room for any substantial period of time. <laughs> I, I will I will say though with this book. So this is so let's I let's get to the point where this book is maybe is maybe bad i think because i think it is interesting like james wood is a critic that i like um i think he he has the critics he has the problem of all good critics which is that um he is so sure of 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 what is good and bad or like what what's aesthetically valuable that you know he can really help you learn a lot about literature but of course he has these you know these huge myopic moments when he just misses what's going on i think like um which i won't get into never mind but so um so I, I like the idea of like this book being a what was the original quote again like a, it's a <laughs> a new category of badness or something like a that new, yeah yeah that's, that's it a new category of badness um, which is hysterical because it it actually gives a weird amount of praise right he's created <laughs> yes. something new <laughs> it's just that it's not any good and so I I think that if I I think that part of the reason this book was elevated for me if I'm being really honest is because I I kept thinking it I think I kept thinking about it through a lens of Bill and I are going to discuss it, right? So that, um, and so for me, like, if I was reading it normally, truthfully, I would still be kind of tearing it apart and trying to figure out what it's doing. I, I think I still would have unlocked its project, that it's a dream book, it's a music book, it's these projections of writer through different times of his life. Like, I think I would have gotten to a lot of those places, and I would have appreciated what I always appreciate about Ishiguro, which is sort of his mastery of a very uh, effortless-looking prose that is actually, I think, really difficult to write, but if I wasn't going to talk about it with someone, if I wasn't going to actually have an outlet to like to make that this book was not if this book sorry if this book wasn't a platform to get to something else, I, I think I would have been much harsher on it. Do you know what I mean? Like it would have felt like an exercise in a sort of self indulgence far more than it did. 
No, that makes sense. You know, one of the joys of doing a project like this is it's explicitly about big books we might otherwise not read, right? Because True. I don't think I would have picked up The Unconsoled unless I was going to go on an Ishiguro completionist kick, which was not impossible. I really liked Remains of the Day, right? So, okay, we got to talk about this. You picked this book, right? <laughs> yeah. So did. what did you think this book was when you picked it? <laughs> okay, so here, here, here's the truth. I had no idea. I, I knew it was about a pianist um, giving a concert in a European city, basically the back cover of the book. I'd heard that, and I, it, it sounded good. There was a couple critics. One was in The Guardian, and um, one was somewhere else. I can't remember. Who both thought it was Ishiguro's best book. And that, and that was just like the blurb that I'd heard, that it was like his best book. If you hated, like, Never Let Me Go, The Buried Giant, which I didn't hate. I didn't think they were great. But um, like, this was the book you should judge him on. And I was like, okay, I like him enough. I should read this. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't know what it was about until I told someone, which I think we, you kind of mentioned. I told one of my friends, I was like, oh, my buddy and I are going to read this book for our podcast that our moms listen to and no one else. <laughs> and, um, and she was like, oh, that's... I tried, I tried to read that for class. That was the first thing she said. I, I tried to read that for class. I'm like, oh, you tried? She's like, yeah, it's a 500-page book of dream logic. And that's when I knew what it was about. So I picked it yeah. based on his reputation. And also, he won the Nobel Prize, which I thought was... Like, I, I was curious. Like, I mean, not that the Nobel Prize is actually mean, meaningful at all. I don't think it really is. But, um, but, you know, like, honestly, him winning for Never Let Me Go makes a lot less sense than him winning for this book, which is clearly ambitious in a way that, you know, some of his other work is not, I think. Yeah, you know, what I'd heard about this book was that this was the book people cited when they talked about the Nobel. Like, I think I, I think I had yes. actually said, you know, he won the Nobel for this book, even though that's not technically how the Nobel Prize works. Um, but like the back cover, right, is from the Booker Prize winning author of Remains of the Day and Never Let Me Go comes an audacious novel that is at once a gripping psychological mystery, a wicked satire of the cult of art, and a poignant character study of a man whose public life has accelerated beyond control. And all of that is true and not not an accurate description of the book at the same time. Like, none of those things are false, but it kind no. of misses that on page 22 he suddenly realizes that the hotel room in this sort of Swiss or whatever town is actually his childhood bedroom from Wales. Like, right. <laughs> Right. Well, and also, like, uh, I, I will say, that's actually a good opening to this book is the one of the ways in which Ishiguro is always smart is all of his books are doing something weird, to be honest. And all of them are yeah. usually dealing with uh, some type of genre. So, like, uh, Never Let Me Go has sort of a, a sci-fi take. Uh, the Buried Giant has sort of a fantasy take. You know, it's, 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 he's, he's really interesting on, on that kind of level of what he wants to pick out of the literary world. Um, and this book was so smart because it does begin like a, like just a, a realistic novel, right? This yeah. is just a guy getting driven to his hotel. And before anything like what you describe happens, where it's a clearly associative leap, before any of that happens, we first start to realize this book is going to be formally inventive if not something different than that even is when he gets in the elevator with gustav the porter who becomes so vital to the story and and then all of a sudden gustav is telling him his life story for like four pages yeah with 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 no warning and it, and it becomes and there's a weird way in which I, I wish i had more time to look at the sentences there's a weird way in which all the monologues have this certain urgency because of the way they just pound on and repeat like how hard something was you know um and I think there's something happening, like literally at the, at the sentence level, as far as like shorter sentences and certain verb constructions or whatever. But like, um, 
I, I, so before anything dreamlike happens, although you could argue that's dreamlike, but you have this very this formal tick that tells you something's weird. And what I like about Ishiguro the most is that he puts up a lot of mysteries in the air, like oh, like who's Brodsky and what's going. Like, he puts up a lot of things that like he wants you to wonder what they are, and he does that in every one of his novels. And he is committed beyond anyone I know to never letting you have a climactic reveal right so but by, by the time that you so you, I've, I've, like page 50 you're asking who's brodsky by the time you know who he is on page 300 or whatever it is it it's not this great satisfying you know uh, unveiling right it's just that at some dinner conversation you were told he used to be a drunk who's now a composer right so he's he's just committed to this like pathetic experience of anti-climax which i think is partly what makes his book so you know, and if it's not poignant, definitely like there's a there's a weird like not punch but aftertaste that sort of keeps you thinking long after you've read the book because he 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 wants it to be uh, it's subverted. You know what I mean? Which I think is really smart. I think that's right. I think that first monologue from Gustav is very very important. Um, partly because it is like the first clue that things are a little weird. I don't. I think you could still read that and just be like. Okay, it's like a style thing, like we're going to have long conversations. Right. Like, I do think the first real stinger <laughs> that like things are real weird is when he has that realization in his hotel room a few pages later. Oh, to- totally but, agree. But I think there's a few things about that monologue that are important. First, I made a joke about apparently they're in a Mass Effect elevator the first time I read it because it <laughs> the conversation is entirely too long for any reasonable elevator ride. Um, I love them. I love the Mass Effect elevators. That's like one of my favorite memories from the first game is just, you know, up and down. I love those. Well, they're just masking loading screens, and that's when they started. They after that they realized people don't actually mind loading screens so much. Like you can, you don't have to that's do this. True. But um, it's also important because it's all about the dignity of being a porter, right? Like it's this. It sets up Gustav's personal story. He's also got the story with Sophia, right? But his personal story about like rescuing the dignity of a porter. And again, I think you can't help but read that, remembering that. This was only a few years after he wrote The Remains of the Day, which is all about one guy's like obsession with like the dignity and professionalism of a, a, a you know, a butler, which is a more prestigious, I guess, position. But it's still this sort of servant. Like these position, like serv- right? servant positions. Yeah. Like, I really think that's very on purpose that that's the first character you meet, because I think it is a, a deliberate sort of, yeah, you know how I was doing this last time? I'm going to play with that a little bit, but we're going to go some much different places now. Like, I, I don't that feels very. I don't know, like a a very deliberate sort of signature to put on the beginning of the book. Well, and also, you're right as far as also, so I keep talking about how there's some similarity in which, like, you have a, a sense of what's happening, but you're never explicit on it until right after it doesn't matter anymore. Do you know what I mean? So, like, you have a sense of what's happening with Brodsky, but you're really unsure. And then as soon as you know about Brodsky, it's not like no one cares that you didn't know in sort in a weird way. Yeah. Um, the, the, the book doesn't care you didn't know. Like, it moves on. It's not a mystery. It's interested in, in resolving. And so, interestingly enough, you're right, because that, that monologue is sort of antithetical to that in the sense of, like, he uses a bunch of different monologues to create this sense of not knowing but almost knowing. But the monologues themselves are so explicit, which in The Remains of the Day, that book is all about this butler reminiscing and not admitting to himself certain truths, right? He's not going to admit to himself sort of the, you know, I don't know, the indignation of his position or the ways in which he missed out on having a love life because he was so committed to servitude, right? He's not going to admit that to himself even really at the very end in some ways. Um, whereas this guy begins it with like, here's the hardship of my life and it is centered in my job. 
and that is you're right that's a definite that's i think an artist because i do think yeah i was gonna say that somewhat trying to ramble but like i do think part of the reason i like this book is because if you've read ishiguro before and i think this book is only good in some ways if you have um you get used to you know you get used to the way someone's mind works almost right you get used to like their particular sort of like stylistic grammar i mean grammar in a in a bigger sense you know and um and I do think so in light of that, like it helps to have read him before and to kind of come up against the ways in which he's varying what he used to do, which is, again, honestly, actually kind of a musical thing. Right. Like, you know, later Beethoven versus early Beethoven or whatever. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, no, I yeah, it's it's a really smart opening. It's And I think if nothing else, I mean, for all of its flaws and its frustrations and maybe even its inanities, it's a really smart book. And I think that's where I come to the conclusion on most books I read is like, am I happy that I got to spend time with this mind or am I not happy? And with Ichiguru, I'm, I'm usually, even if I don't like the book that much, I'm usually pretty satisfied by the fact that I got to get in his head for a bit, you know? Yeah, that's, I think that's how I feel about this book. I appreciate a lot of what it's doing. I'm glad I read it. I don't think it's going to be one I return to. You know, I, I don't, I don't see myself reading this book again. Unless I am teaching it for some no. inexplicable reason, you know, like, <laughs> Same. Same. Um, I, uh, but I'm very glad I read it. And I, I think if I try to write anything going forward, I will be a slightly better writer because I read it too, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, no, I think, yeah, he's a real masterclass on how to do some things. I think that's true. I don't know. Uh, so I'm glad we did it. Okay, so uh, for everyone who doesn't want to hear about things that aren't Ishiguro, you're welcome to stop the podcast. <laughs> because my because my question has to deal with uh, one thing that you might not know about and one thing you, you probably do. The first thing that related is Donald Glover. Um, right. Nothing about, nothing about his recent um, video, which I thought was, you know, compelling and unnerving and, you know, a step in our artistic direction I'm very surprised by and impressed by. Um but so because of that video, that this is America video that he just released, um, the music video, I started reading more about him because like most people, especially most like white guys in their late 20s, early 30s who know Donald Glover, I know him from community, right? Yeah. So it's been really funny to see him have this like completely different career shift where he's gone from being really silly to like taking his intelligence and trying to be a lot more profound with it while still not not losing some of that silliness like his show Atlanta is still funny. I've only seen some of. Okay, all I have to say is, so I was really interested in him, and I got directed to this New Yorker profile, which is all about, like, you know, basically how he has changed his life. But it seems also like he maybe is losing the plot a little bit. Um, and so all I have to say is, like, so I, 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 want, I wanted to ask you about, like, so, like, what what is it about, like, comic comic actors, comedians... I think they get to a place where they feel like comedy is not enough and they want to become profound. And there's, but there's a way in which they also, they seem to wreck themselves personally to do it. And like, I just, I don't, I I think it's some combination of intelligence and sensitivity that drives a person to sort of despair in a weird way. Is that, I don't know, does that make sense? No, it does. So, uh, do you know what Jim Carrey is doing right now? Cause I do, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I know he's off, but he's someone I thought of. I know he's definitely changed his career course. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know what he's doing with like his whole career, but I was on YouTube and I saw a trailer for this movie where he plays like a Russian detective investigating a murder. And it appears to be from the trailer, you know, I, I don't like a pretty straightforward, hard boiled, like violence and, and unpleasantness 
you know, gray color palette, Eastern European thriller thing, uh, you know, relatively low budget, where Jim Carrey plays this detective, as far as I can tell. And again, maybe I've right. missed something and it's more complex than that. Um, and, you know, why is Jim Carrey doing that? I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. A lot of comedians, when they get to a certain stage, particularly a certain stage of prominence, um, feel like they got to switch gears entirely, particularly the smart, like, I don't want to, that's mean, but like the comedians who are sort of trying to do more intelligent humor, right? Like, I don't know if like, yeah. Jim Gaffigan is going to do this. Does that make sense? Like, I'm not trying to pick on Jim Gaffigan, <laughs> but I don't, I don't really well, see him making this switch. <laughs> I think so. I think that's actually so. It's interesting. So I, I think uh, without making this my personal rant on, on Donald Glover, who I like, but I think what got me about the New Yorker profile is it seemed like there's this real undercurrent of despair he has, and he talks yeah. a lot about algorithms. He talks about like, which I'm going to get to. That's the second thing I want to talk about. He talks a lot about like he goes into a room and he like figures out the algorithm of how to be a good comedian, and he becomes a good comedian. He, like, does a talk show. Now he, like, unlocks how to do talk shows. Now he's good. And I think we all know people like that. Like, he actually sounds like my brother Mark in some ways, who Mark would just, like, pick up anything he wanted to in high school or college and then be the best at it, right? Yeah. Um, which was always super annoying because he didn't ever try. He just suddenly was the best soccer <laughs> player and the best actor. Oh, and he's really good at singing. He's the best singer in the family. He doesn't even know how to read music. That's a true story. Mark can't read music, and he's the best singer in the family. Um <laughs> Anyway, so, but what got me was like this, he's convinced that he's unlocked this philosophical despair, but what I kept coming back to is it was like, because um, I related to it, like he talks about his depressive cycles and like the way in which his creativity, you know, and his frustrations with the world that are intellectual, they come out in, the, in emotional ways, but he doesn't ever say it like that. And I, I just thought there's this weird combination of sensitive and intellectual person, and it, it makes it, it's like weirdly hard I don't know, to, to continue being creative without also having some kind of personal wreckage, which reminded me of this book. Do you know what I mean? Like where it was this book that this guy can never separate the art from the ways in which the art personally wrecks himself. Um, and I, I just wish I could like tell Donald or tell everyone like this, that like it feels like there are the emotional problems that you're intellectualizing in the book for writer and for Donald Glover. And it was just this weird, like, sorry, this weird, like, you know, meeting of totally different tracks that all of a sudden came together. That makes sense. So I haven't really read enough about Donald Glover to contribute to him specifically, right? Like I'm aware of who he is, but I haven't actually seen really even very much community, never mind um, much else of his stuff. So I don't have right. a lot of context for him as a person. Um, he was good in Spider-Man for that two minute scene. Uh, <laughs> he was. Uh, no, he was really good in it. I mean, I'm not being. <laughs> no, yeah, I agree. But, <laughs> But I've been thinking a lot about sort of um, like the genius artists for a couple of years now, but particularly recently, you know, we're seeing Kanye West sort of self-destruct and I didn't have a lot of attachment to Kanye, but a lot of people, he was like the genius, um, you know, the genius right. rapper that they really had a lot tied up in. And now he's, he's kind of self-destructing politically and, and sort of personally, I guess, like he, he doesn't seem to be making a ton of sense on Twitter, even regardless of his politics. Right. Um, right. But you know, like there was that article in the, uh, the Atlantic recently about David Foster Wallace and the way we all sort of, uh, I mean, not we, I don't, I haven't read any of his stuff really, so I don't really care, but a lot of people sort of excused, he just stalked this woman for well, this, like this, years. Well, this is about, you know? yeah, well, so Mar Mary Carr teaches in my program. I know her. Oh, I didn't know that. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So, it, so I read that article and it was really weird because like we just, I don't know, we recently talked about male artists with her and I had no idea she did this like tweet storm that, yeah, got blown up into an Atlantic article basically about a guy that I whose writing I like, but who I've known for years is is personally pretty problematic. <laughs> you know, and we have, so we have all these these sort of 
really big, important people who've done great stuff. Or like, you know, the comic I think about, like Louis C.K., who I really like a lot of his stuff. And it turns out he was a real big creep for a long time. You know, not as bad as some of these guys are, but still just not acceptable behavior, you know. And what to what extent is his art tied up in that? Like a lot of his... Like, Louis is a very profound show a lot of the time, but it's often really kind of about how gross Louis C.K. is. And you're like, well, this was... Well, well I always knew this was autobiographical, out, but it turns out he's really quite yeah. gross. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it also, it makes it makes the show less profound because some of the profundity was that, like, here's a really good dad who's trying really hard. And we know in real life, he's like, he's like, he's a feminist or whatever. And so it's this, it's this way in which he was like complicating something. Right. But it turns out maybe he wasn't, maybe he was just part, sometimes a bad dude who was also trying to do good. <laughs> I, I don't know. I think we, I've been thinking a lot about this, just this whole issue. And I was thinking about it a couple of years ago with some of the video game stuff. And I wrote a piece about it. Like, so it's been something I've been thinking about a lot. Like, the combination of how very self-obsessed you have to be to actually release art into the world. Like, yes, to really say, exactly. I made this thing and I want you to read it. Like, that's really, really a very weird thing to do. <laughs> um, well, and even worse, because most of us are like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Oh, but read my book and love it. But don't look at me. I don't like the spotlight, but please read this book and love it. You know, like, I've written some stuff that like, I really want people to read this because I think it's pretty good. But also, like... You know, so I want feedback, and I, I do want criticism. But on the other hand, of course, I don't ever want you to talk to me again about anything. Certainly not anything I've written, because my God, it's so okay. <laughs> right. um, but like to really, I don't know. Our relationship with genius is such a. I, I, one thing I just don't really think. I think we should stop saying genius. I think we should stop talking about people who are geniuses. Not because they're unless we're talking maybe. about genie in individual circumstances, right? Unless we mean a genie on his own. It should. Oh, be. like an actual genie, like a gin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that was a really forced joke. Keep going. No, no, I liked it. I liked it. <laughs> you know, so I've, I've uh, like Janelle Monae's newest album came out, right? And I'm a pretty big Janelle Monae fan. I actually didn't like this album that much, which we can talk about maybe if you want at some future date. Um, but I can still re really respect a lot of what's going into it, and it's very smart and it's very well constructed. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if anybody's a genius in modern sort of pop or pop adjacent music, it's really Janelle Monae over most of these other people. And right. so I'm torn. Like, on the one hand, I want to say that she's a genius because, again, if anyone deserves it, she does. And we should recognize women and women of color, particularly as geniuses, if we're going to continue the category. Right. But on the other hand, I think we shouldn't continue the category. <laughs> like, I think I think it gives people an excuse to be horrible, even as it maybe also gives them an excuse to be creative in exciting ways. So I don't know. No, there is this way in which I mean, that, that is well, and that's partly what this book's about, too. Like, and, and, and to what extent does your like your public offering like what to what extent does it give you cover for your private mistakes? Because actually, one part of this book, especially like in our our Me Too moment or whatever this is, um, the part of this book that I thought was flimsy at times. And again, I think writers being condemned for this, but there's like his relationship with Sophia. Um, it it felt dated to me, even in the sense yeah. that it's being condemned. It still felt like he was going after, you know. Like, so the best example I have is, like, they're going to this dinner. Um, and, of course, this is all happening in, in a June-like scenario, so it's hard to get to the details of it. Except that she keeps looking at herself in the mirror to make sure she looks good, and Ryder keeps getting angrier and angrier. And there's this weird way in which it, 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 it almost reminded me of, like, there was this period in the 90s, which this book is from, when, like, uh, does this dress make me look fat? Like, that joke was in every single movie, right? Like, yeah. sometimes it was a guy saying it. Sometimes it was a girl saying it. But it was always this way in which, like, it was a joke on femininity and feminine insecurity and whatever else. And even when it was done smartly, it was sort of of the moment of how we thought about women and fashion. And probably still exists. I'm sure the joke is still made in plenty of TV shows. Yeah. Um, 
But it felt like it felt like that sort of a joke where it was like, okay, he was trying to criticize Ryder, but he was also having to implement this sequence that seemed really sort of shallow as far as a take on how a, a, a woman partner could be annoying. Does that make sense? Yeah. And and so I yeah so I I think um but I think the interesting part of the book that happens of course is that Ryder is being exorciated for a lot of this behavior and yet he's still beloved and it's just it's a pretty complex you know little paradox yeah no um, i would agree it's a so the other thing this book I, made me think of and this is this is really weird um do you ever play like any of those sandbox games like red red redemption or la noir or anything like that Grand i have Nintendo? yeah i've played red dead redemption yeah, so you know how in Red Dead Redemption you have your main character who's sort of got a quest, but then really much of your game is going around and helping other people with their sort of missions? Like you're yeah. just kind of this sort of force of nature that somebody can call up to just kill a billion people so that he can do whatever he wants. Um, right. And you know how, like, as I recall in Red Dead, certainly in some of these, you have sort of multiple plots happening at the same time. So like depending on where you go on the map, it's like, here's the next chapter in this guy's quest, Right. Right. They, and and I think they're they're like bottlenecks where you have to finish all of them before you can get to the next main thing. But there's still for much of the game, you can go, you know, you can finish a quest and then you can do more of that guy's story or you can go jump to somebody the other thing. So all the all the stories sort of happen asynchronously in this weird sort of suspended animation where time doesn't really move until all of them have accomplished. Right. There's no difference between doing all of the guy's quests right after the other in terms of the sense of urgency he has right, versus if right. you do one and then dick around for 50 hours and then come back. And then also how Marston in particular, his characterization swings wildly depending on who he's around. Because around some of the people, he's the gritty outlaw who does whatever you know he wants. And around some people, he is the man with the heart of gold, which is complicated further by the fact that being a rock star game, you can do anything you want in the game. Like you can, you can play him as a really pretty nice guy who rescues you know women who are getting beaten up, or you can play him as just this mass murdering monster. Uh, and so the game has to try to square all of that. The book feels a bit like that in some ways, because, like, writer's personality <laughs> changes depending on who he's around. And, again, much of the book is him kind of wandering into other people's stories for a while, sort of outside of his control. And, again, time doesn't really matter. He's always worried about being late, but he's not ever late to anything. He just misses some stuff. Like, he's never actually... No, it's, late. it's true. I, it's so funny. I don't... I don't I, I, this is why I love talking about books. I would have never thought of it as a sandbox game. But like the more you described, like the different subplots that get picked up and left without any consequence, even right? Like, yeah, that's that's this book. <laughs> this book is him picking up and dropping off and juggling different people's side quests, <laughs> um, with his own main quests, you know, progressing almost almost without any relevance to these side missions, which is hysterical because this book was written so long before some of those games. Um, yeah, I, mean, I don't even think that's GTA a really good analogy. <laughs> Well, I don't know. It's just kind of how, again, I thinking about the logic of the game, that's or the logic of the book, that's really how it feels. Uh, so what I'm really saying is Rockstar should adapt the Unconsoled for their next uh, AAA <laughs> oh release. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> they, truthfully, I, I've like, I've like, I don't have time to play video games anymore, I feel like. I don't watch movies either. It's become like, I'm a, I'm a, I've become every, every new dad ever. Um, <laughs> but uh, I would play that game obsessively if they did it well. That'd be such an interesting game. Okay, the last thing I have to bring up, which I know <laughs> I keep bringing stuff up before we maybe wrap up. Um, so the Steve, uh, the Donald Glover article brought up uh, this thing that's been floating around the internet for a few years that drives me a little batty, and I was curious about what you thought. It's that, uh, I can't remember the philosopher's name, but it's that idea that we're just in a simulation that's being done in the future, 
So the, the oh. notion that so it's the notion that at some point computers will inevitably be smart enough to simulate real life, you know, history. And so if that's the case, we could never know if we are real or in a simulation. And I was just curious what you thought about that. Oh, and particularly, I think the one argument is that if there are computers who are smart enough to do this, there'll be a lot of them doing it. So there'll be exponentially more simulations than there are real universes, even if you accept multiverse theory. So therefore, the statistics are that we're in one of those rather than in one of the real ones because of right. stats, which is not how statistics work. Um uh, first of all <laughs> yeah i don't know i um okay i'll leave my cards on the table i think it's stupid I yeah think no it's i think one it's of dumb stupider <laughs> things and so here's why i think it's stupid i mean so if it, if it gives you anything what it gives you is maybe a modern update on like plato's cave right maybe yeah. it gives you a sense of like it maybe gives you a sense that there's the possibility of a reality beyond reality. It gives you that sense. You can now have, you, if because you can imagine it happening in this one algorithm construction, it then gives you this sense of like, well, maybe there is more because I can imagine there being more under these certain constrictions. But what drives me crazy, it's two points. One, this, this idea that we're in, inevitably going to have computers that can um, somehow generate self-conscious simulations because whatever self-consciousness is, which I know hardcore materialists think it's an illusion because they're stupid. Um, <laughs> but uh, whatever it is or isn't, it's still a, a, an enormously complex thing to simulate. And so for me, it sort of feels like saying, well, because we're inevitably inevitably going to have uh, space travel that's so fast we then have time travel, we know that there are people here from the future, which I know has kind of been said, but like, that to me is the same sort of technological assumption without any grounding. It's like someone talking about computers who doesn't know computers, right? That we're inevitably going to have something that complex to me is way off the table. The second thing is that the more important thing, forget that nitpicking, is it doesn't tell us anything useful about life. Yes. Right? It doesn't tell <laughs> us anything. It doesn't, it, like, at least in Plato's cave, there's an epistemological kind of application. Um, and, and this in this scenario... If this is such a real simulation that I feel self-conscious, who cares? What is yeah. it? What does it matter? Because it doesn't change the fact that I've got to wake up and help my daughter, or that I've got to choose something the next day, or that I've got to try and be moral, or I've got to try and be responsible. Whatever. There's no ways in which it actually describes or improves my understanding of reality, which means it's just a useful or useless piece of philosophy. Is that's my take? No. Yeah. I. I mean, I more or less agree. I don't. Uh... I mean, that, that's, I think I would probably sign off on everything you said. The only thing I would add is I haven't really thought about it enough to get to that level of precision in my, why it's not important. <laughs> because the only actual response to that is a very long fart noise. Like, I don't... <laughs> like, no, it's ridiculous. I know. It's, you know, I don't... I don't well, have a lot of time supposed for to, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, it, it, it's supposed to... I get that's supposed to be fun, but I just... I wanted to end on that because Donald Glover... He puts that in a show Atlanta, and I, I think there's a real way in which, like, that's the level of philosophizing some of these people, like Kanye West. I think that's and not maybe Donald Glover, who's really smart, but like that's sometimes the level of philosophizing they're doing, and it frustrates me because I think you can only get to that point when reality itself has become so fraught that you're struggling with it. And then what bums me out is that people turn to these half-baked no you know, no grounded ontology or epistemological or even just sort of, you know, common sense aid 
they turn to these things as, as though they're supposed to be some sort of enlightenment. And it's, I, I think it's like, I, I like to make fun of it, but at the same time, like, I think people take some of this stuff seriously. Maybe not the algorithm specifically, but they do in the sense that like, hey, nothing matters. And I, you know, here's an example of how nothing matters. It's like, cool, but you still have obligations in life. Like, how are you going to deal with that? Yeah, I mean, so the people I think of when I think of that kind of thing are not so much like entertainers or whatever, although certainly, but it's like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel and some of those guys. Ugh, like yes. Elon Musk apparently has, he has said, it may be in joke, it's hard to tell, but that, that he thinks we're living in a simulation. Um, you know, and some of these guys who get really worked up about like the dangers of AI in the future, which is, I, I don't think it's a useless thing to think about. I think it's very, you know, I think we are relying on AI in some ways that are scary. And I, it isn't hard for me to imagine a, you know, AI that causes a lot of damage. I don't know as we're necessarily going to get to the singularity the way people talk about. I think any, any, uh, any I political agree. philosophy that begins with necessarily this will happen should be scrutinized. <laughs> Not because that yeah. won't happen, but because nothing necessarily happens. I don't, I don't think right. people understand life is very complicated. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, um, yeah. And I think that we've, we've been sold this progressive model and the progressive model in the sense of like literally technology has always progressed. And so I think people have put this like limitless progression onto what technology will be, which to me seems, that seems like bad, that seems like bad logic actually, that because things have progressed does not mean that they will always progress to an infinite level. That seems clearly to be bad reasoning. Yeah. And we see this in, in science. We see it in like people's understanding of politics and such too. I'll never forget on, I think it was on Colbert's show. One of those ta Coates said, you know, people like to throw on that MLK quote about, you know, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice, which I guess isn't even actually MLK. I think he was quoting someone else, but regardless, that, that right. idea. And Coates says, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that the arc of the universe tends towards chaos. <laughs> I, yeah. I think it's only it through definitely like, does. <laughs> difficult work and effort that we've made any progress. And it's not to suggest we haven't made progress, but yeah. I think that sort of teleological necessity, people say, you know, we're gonna, things are always going to be better going forward. Technology is always going to be either good for us or even just more complicated in ways we can predict, I think is, is dangerous. And I think it allows people like, uh, you know, I think it hoodwinks people like Kanye West, who aren't very, you know, who brags about how he doesn't read books and is therefore very sort of susceptible. easy to, is susceptible to this kind of thinking and people who haven't had a lot of humanities training and therefore don't realize that it really is like, you really got to know how to think about these things, right? Yeah. But it also hoodwinks, yeah. like, people who actually have power. Like, Kanye West has power, but he's not going to, Well, he's not, you know, not, he's not like Elon Musk, even, who has a weird amount of power, right? I mean, yeah. You know, it worries me when people like Elon Musk and Peter Thiel talk about these things, not actually because I think the algorithm matters, because I think you're right. There's no so what from that. So if Elon Musk believes we live in an algorithm, I don't really think that changes his behavior. But it's because if he gets very caught up in that kind of thinking, what other sort of philosophically illiterate things does he think that he might act on <laughs> yeah it's true it's true so okay well we've digressed probably enough um any any last thoughts on ishiguro or the the unconsoled <laughs> no i mean i think this book is worth reading but it's um it's definitely more of a i don't want to say a chore but like a project than some other things i might read right like same and it's I know it's very unique to get back to what you asked me earlier. It's not anything like the weirdest book I've ever read, but it is on the list and it is certainly one of the weirdest books of like litfic I've ever read. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I, I only thing I would add is I, I recommend reading it, but um, Ishiguro's other books are generally pretty short. And I, I think the remains of the day is the best that I've read of his so far. Um, I would, you know, if you're interested, if you're interested in him, I'd read that. And then, you know, at some point in the future, I, I'd read this. Cause I think that's, that, that, that'd be a pretty good progression. 
Yeah. And that's it's only two books of his I've read. And I definitely think I was better prepared for this book having read The Remains of the Day, even though I read it yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. No, I, I think I was I was also happy to have read him first because otherwise I would not have given him as much leeway, I think, some of his <laughs> yeah. tricks. Got to prove he knows what he's doing before I'm willing to yeah. go with him on this journey. <laughs> I did yeah, think about so. that. If I wrote this book, like word for word, you know, uh, Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote style, like with this book not existing, if I wrote it, nobody would read right. it. Like, <laughs> no, I, no, it's definitely it's definitely a book you can only write after a success. That does, I think that's accurate. You you pointed it out earlier with the the Butler Porter connection, but I yeah. and even the fact that he became a public artist. But I I think beyond that, it's the sort of ambitious and vague and weird project that like it can survive James Wood, the critic of the time, saying. It's a new category of badness because Ishiguro, he already won the man Booker. You know what I mean? Like he gets yeah. to do whatever he wants now. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, all right, man. Okay. Well, thanks for talking. Yeah, I think that pretty well does it. So we've got our summer book picked out, right? Yes. We're going to do Stephen King's The Stand, right? The Stand? Yep. Okay. Which is uh, a brick. So our last two big <laughs> reads have just... been about 500, 600 pages long. My copy of The Stand, I think, is 1,200 pages long. I know. I know. So if you're going to read so... along with this, you may want to start soon. <laughs> And I, w- I would recommend, so what I'm, what I'm definitely going to do for this book, I have to, I'm moving from Syracuse to Denver this summer. And so I, I am 100% getting the audiobook to aid me because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm excited to read Stephen King. I've only read um, a little bit of him. Um, and I have some preconceived notions that are, are probably going to be exploded, I hope. But uh, I can't believe how long this book is. I'm already, I'm already going to tell you when, when we talk later that I'm going to recommend he cut some stuff. <laughs> well, so this is just real quick in um, the book. The only version of the book I think you can buy anymore, and in, I mean, I'm sure you can buy, but the one that you buy when you search The Stand on Amazon is actually like a director's cut of the book. Which I know. Is, um, I think it's the one we're, we're reading. Uh, and it's like added another like 40,000 words to it. And it's, you know, it's the definitive version. It's the one most people have read. So I think that's the one we should read. But like the book was apparently already quite large. And then he added an entire other, you know short novel to it <laughs> i mean you talk about artists who do whatever they want to stephen king is at a point when like it, i mean he's his own it'll be so interesting when he when he dies to be honest to see the retrospectives on his career because i think some people legitimately want to defend what he's done for literature and i, I think he probably has a few books that will survive but um but truthfully like i i don't know like plenty of people fade there are plenty of prolific science fiction writers um who no one reads anymore and i don't think he'll be one of them but um, I think he definitely thinks he's a literary force in a way that, you know, he, he might not be qualitatively. But we'll talk about that next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That, this is all next time stuff. But uh, read along with us for The Stand. Um, we're going to re- try to record that sometime in late July, early August, or maybe mid-August now, since we pushed this back a little bit. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll definitely uh, keep reminding people to read it, and we may do a small read between now and then, or we may not. We make no promises. With regard to small reads, those are those are happy little surprises and not, in fact, <laughs> planned out events. Um, yeah, so thanks for listening and uh, thanks for talking, Joel. I, I enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah, me too, man. I'll talk to you later. All right, see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.
Thanks very much to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcasts so far. You can find both Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc on SoundCloud under their names if you'd like to hear more of their work. Um, you should be able to get new episodes of the Big Read Cast and its occasional attendant small readcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, most other places where a person might get podcasts. If there's a service you use that we're not currently uh, working with, let us know and we'll see if we can't make that magic happen. In the meantime, thanks very much. Let us know what you think about this episode and uh, see you next time.